My name is Vicky McGuinness and I'm here in Torch today to talk to Dr Beatrice Groves who is Research Fellow in Renaissance English at Trinity College, Oxford. We are here to talk about her work, particularly her recent book Literary Illusion in Harry Potter and her subsequent trail she created for the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Thank you very much for coming Beatrice, it's great to be able to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. First of all, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your book. What inspired you to write about literary illusion? So when I was reading Harry Potter, which I did as an undergraduate um, in Cambridge, um, I noticed that there was this incredibly evil cat called Mrs Norris. And Mrs Norris is a name for one of the most ghastly characters in literature, whose Mrs Norris is the aunt of the heroine in Mansfield Park. And there are so few Mrs Norrises around that I thought that's definitely an allusion to Mansfield Park and you simply don't expect to find that in a children's book. So that immediately sort of snagged in my brain and sort of put away for another time. And then I thought oh, it might be fun to follow this down and see what else she's doing, what other books she's referencing um, in Harry Potter. So tell us a little bit more about what literary illusion is. So literary illusion is the process by which books incorporate recognisable bits of other books in their work. And in popular understanding, there's lots of negative ideas about the way that texts borrow from each other. So there's the fear of being derivative, there's the literary crime of plagiarism. There's also um, a big idea in literary theory made famous by writers like um, T.S. Eliot and Harold Bloom of the anxiety of influence, the idea of a creative artist as someone who's struggling against generally male, you know, great male progenitors of the past who he's trying to, in a, in a Oedipal fashion, you know, fight off and say, I am the new creator, and, and seeing the, the great writers of the past as something oppressive. And Eliot found that about Shakespeare, you know, he thought I'd never write a play, because if I write a play it'll just be derivative of Shakespeare, and then eventually he did write a play and it was indeed extremely <laughs> derivative of Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> and that's a very negative attitude to the way in which texts influence new texts. Um, but the word illusion derives from the Latin from ludere to play, and it has a, a much more positive and playful attitude, which seems to me um, the correct response to how texts um, owe things to previous texts but can enjoy that relationship but there's a great critic called Christopher Ricks who calls illusion the generous spend spending of an inheritance and I think that's a really great phrase for what illusion is that's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. I, think a, I, I agree. It's a much nicer way of looking at it. It's not plagiarism. It's actually just recognising... Exactly. You know, and there's a fundamental difference between plagiarism and illusion is that illusion is meant to be recognised. Mm. The reader is an active part okay. in illusion, whereas plagiarism, obviously, you're intending for them not to spot that yeah. you've stolen this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Literally taken it. Yeah. yeah, and I think also, probably, a lot of people, if they use literary illusion in in that way, they're actually showing, well, I'm very well read, I'm influenced by all these other things. So actually, it's almost a, a, a credit to them. Almost. Exactly, and it's also playing to that in their reader. So mm. the more books you've read as a reader, mm. the more likely you're going to spot these things. There's a writer called Alberto Man, um, 
Mangle, who calls the process of illusion the way one book calls to another unexpectedly, creating alliances across different cultures and centuries. Mm-hmm. And it's again another lovely expression for the way illusion works. Mm-hmm. And I thought about the way in which in Harry Potter the books literally talk. So these are books that literally call to each other. Oh, um, yeah. You have books that shout out, scream if they're opened illicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, Hermione buys Ron and Harry chirply motivational homework diaries that say things like, do it today or tomorrow you'll pay. When she shuts up Magic Most Evil, it wails because it doesn't like being shut. Um, obviously, Riddle's diary writes back to you when you write in it. And my favourite one of these is that when Harry enters the library at night, he hears the books whispering to each other. And so I thought this is a literal world of talking books yeah. and the way that makes more sense that they might be elusive in a more traditional sense as well. Gosh, it's clever, isn't it? It's almost like a matrix. I love what you say about it's crossing not only sort of geographical space, but also time. Absolutely. Magic. <laughs> love it. Even more magical. So tell us a little bit more about how you chose the themes and the objects for your trail in the Ashmolean, because obviously you explained some really exciting bits that we all know and love from Harry Potter. How did you translate that into collections that were on display in the Ashmolean Museum? So I've actually, I've lived in Oxford since I was five. Ah. So I've known the Ashmolean all my life. A bit of time to look at it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've always loved the Ashmolean, always visited it regularly. So... It was when I, in some senses, some of this was happening the other way around. When I read about a sphinx in Harry Potter, mm-hmm. I thought about the sphinxes in the Ashmolean. And when Harry goes into a labyrinth, I remember those gorgeous coins from Gnosis, which have a little labyrinth on with the yes, monitor in the centre. They are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was thinking about the language of flowers, for example, the way in which she uses flower names to convey meaning, mm. um, again, you know, there's paintings um, which do that in the Ashmolean. So they're partly, it had created my knowledge of these things in, in part. And then I would, when I was going to do this talk, I went round a few times, um, dragged my friends and family round with me and had a look at things and thought which one. So for example, there's a centaur um, in the cast gallery. There's gold coins with galleons on them, which I think that's why she calls the gold coinage in Harry Potter galleons because mm. those classic gold coins from the 16th century have those on. So things like that, just looking round for things that I recognise from Harry Potter. Mm. Um, it was a lot of fun. So essentially it's a lifetime of not only literary illusion, <laughs> it's actually visual illusion that you've managed to hook things together. That's right, and she studied classical um, studies at university, not actually classics, but um, yeah classical civilization. This is J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and so she has a lot of knowledge of, of classical things, as we're talking about, mm. centaurs, sphinxes, labyrinths, and that's something the Ashmolean has a very rich collection in as well. So there was, mm. yeah, that was a sort of bedrock of it. Indeed. Uh-huh. So what we'd love to hear as well, because of course when we have these opportunities to share what we've researched and what we've learnt and and communicate that with the public. Of course, what you did was a trail with the public around the museum, talking to them. Um, And that actually gives you a rare opportunity to hear back from the audiences immediately. Um, What did you think about, um, you know, the 
the public's feedback? How, how did they react to the tours? Well, um, they were very um, engaged and enthused. You know, Harry Potter has spoken to millions of people worldwide, and whenever I talk about my research, people are always terribly excited by it. Um, one of the things that you find out when you give a talk is what particular parts of your research people resonate with, and something I found that everyone has really enjoyed is critilic naming. Mm. Now, critilic naming is not a common word. In fact, I'm trying to spread it. It's not actually in the <laughs> OED at the moment. The Oxford English Dictionary doesn't uh, recognise it as a word. That's our next podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the word was invented, in fact, by someone that I, I know, someone called Anne Barton, who's a great Shakespearean mm. scholar, and she wrote a book about Ben Jonson's use of comic naming and invented the phrase critilic naming in that book, um, derived from a dialogue by Plato called the Cratillus, in which Cratillus believes, his character in the dialogue, um, that names accurately tell you about the thing that is named. So names are, as it were, make visible an inherent part of the thing that is named. It doesn't work as a naming theory, as Aristotle sort of shows him, it doesn't work. But, of course, if you're a fiction writer, you can make it work because you get to name all your characters. And English fiction, you know, from Ben Jonson, Dickens loves it, Roald Dahl loves it, and Rowling is, um, you know, the latest in a long line of English comic writers who love critilic names. And it's something I think everyone who reads Harry Potter notices, even if they don't have this name for it, um, that the names tell you things about people. And the moment you think about them, they tell you more and more. So uh, an example, quite a sort of wacky example that I really like is Slughorn. So his name, it fits the onomatopoeic theory of naming, with the O's and the U's sort of sounding quite fat, and Slughorn's a big guy. <laughs> but it also, um, slugs have have horns. They have these little bits of much. And when... And they withdraw them the moment there's any sign of danger. And something we know about Slughorn, we find out about him, is he's extremely careful. Mm. And his name actually describes the way that Harry's going to have to absolutely work to get that Horcrux memory out of him. He's not going to be able to just ask for it. He's going to have to eke it out very, very gently by being very, sort of doing it, as it were, by in a friendly way, not by violence, but by charming it out of him. Um, and I think it's very clever that that you know, plot point basically is encoded in his name. Mm. Something I talked about on the tour of the Ashmolean was flower names mm. um, and we looked at some beautiful 17th century embroidery where they use symbolic flowers to express so roses for love and lilies for purity and things like that and when I was talking about this I said to people can you think of any flower names in Harry Potter and someone said lavender and I, I'd never thought about her um, as a flower. Now, obviously, she's a flower name, but she's not a character who's that important. I hadn't thought about it. So when I, I went then and looked it up in the Victorian language of flowers, and lavender means mistrust, which is mm. perfect. She is the oh, most yes. mistrustful girlfriend. Entirely uh, fair enough, in a way. But, um, <laughs> that was perfect. That was a lovely example of where you, you know, someone brings something to you and you think, oh, yes, that absolutely works with the theory. It must have taken so much because none of this is accidental. You know, J.K. Rowling must have created this this absolute tapestry of identities and, as you say, plot lines. She spent five years planning it before she wrote the first wow. novel, and it really shows. Yeah, it really absolutely. does show. Amazing. Um, 
what's your favourite object that you included in your trail or you didn't include in your trail? <laughs> so my favourite object was um, Elias Ashmole's crystal ball. And so this was favourite obviously because it fits so well with Harry Potter to have an actual crystal ball. But also I suppose because that was something that was very specific to the Ashmolean, finding out about Ashmole's interest in arcane knowledge. So there's, there's lots of arcane knowledge in Harry Potter and Ashmole uh, is more involved in it than you might expect. So I discovered researching this talk that um, he was the first Freemason, for example, in that we know of in England. Really? It's very surprising, okay, isn't it? Yeah. And he also extraordinarily believed that he could make the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> you'd think you'd kind of know whether you could or not, wouldn't you? But he believed he had the secret to that. Oh, wow. And he was fascinated by an Elizabethan magus called John Dee. And um, the portrait that he bought of John Dee, which is up in the Ashmolean, is one of the few, you know, one of the most famous portraits of John Dee. He also bought as many objects that belonged to Dee as he could, and that crystal ball is one of them. So that crystal ball probably was used by John Dee to talk to angels. Right. So it's kind of wacky. Yeah. Um, but it's also linked through to alchemy because John Dee wrote lots of alchemical manuscripts mm. that were passed Brilliant. to Ashmole through his son. Right. And so Ashmole published them in the mid-17th century, and they are, in fact, the most important... Um, printed version of alchemical manuscripts in England were published by, by Ashmole. Mm-hmm. And that's, I didn't know about that um, and uh, it was fascinating because alchemy is so important in Harry Potter. So she was going to have it as a subject and she ended up not choosing to make it literal in that sense. But obviously the first one is called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yes. So the alchemy is embedded um, in it. But it there are two types of alchemy. So there's exoteric alchemy, which is what people think of as alchemy, the search for the Philosopher's Stone. And there's also esoteric alchemy, where that search is a symbolic search for spiritual purity. And so the finding of the gold is actually just about purifying yourself. And it's about what the alchemical adept does to themselves, not what they're doing to the metallic objects. Right. Okay. And that is the alchemy that Rowling has actually really included. Okay. So the whole series of novels is the purification of Harry towards being the sort of perfect hero who can die and rise again at the end. Spoiler alert. It's spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> I hope no one listening has not read all of them. You can put spoiler alert at the beginning. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, but the alchemical process, for example, is um, goes through a number of colours, mm. um, red, white and black, the albedo, the white one, the rubedo, the red one, and the negredo, the black one, and you'll notice that Harry's mentors, Albus Dumbledore, Rubius, Hagrid, and Sirius Black, are those colours. They will enable him to be the gold, Mm -hmm. and in the final novel, when they put a bit of Harry into the Polyjuice Potion, it turns gold, because that is, it says the Polyjuice Potion is essence of you, and the essence of Harry is that he's become Mm. the gold now. Wow. Gosh. I just really enjoyed the books. <laughs> no, I'm going to have to reread them all. That's excellent. I, I've had a lot of people responding to me just saying, I knew I really enjoyed them. Yeah. And these are really, you know, and I've known I wanted to reread them. I've known there's more there, but I haven't quite been able to say why. And this is 
been really fun for making me think, yes, she really did think about it. No, I'm not imagining that there's a real depth to these. I had my sort of favourite one was when someone said, I said to my sister that Mrs Norris was Mansfield Park, and she said it wasn't, and now I'm going to tell her that she's wrong. <laughs> so apart from sorting out yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> important. But, but I think also, it's a, it, it's an, it's a new lens to, to look at those books, you know, and you, you, you can't just read them once, really, can you? Because actually the literary illusion aspect to it I mean, you'd never get through a page. It's... And I think that's something else really valuable that she's doing in them, is that they also are intratextual, so um, they echo each other. So mm. book one okay. echoes book seven, two, six, three, five, and like that pivots around book four. Mm. So she's encouraging you in a literary mode of reading where you're looking for those parallels, you're looking for texts that talk to each other. Mm. Um, so again, an, another one of my favourite responses was um, when I said that to someone. It, it's called a chiastic form, um, mm -hmm. this, this version. It is very common in, in literature, particularly sort of older literature. And she said, OK, so, you know, what, what are the parallels between two and six then? And I said, well, what's six mainly about? And she said, it's about the search for Horcruxes, it's about him learning what Horcruxes are. And I said, and when did we first meet a Horcrux? And her eyes just opened, she said, book two. The first Horcrux is Riddle's Diary. I was like, yes. And you'd think at the time that just seems chance that you meet it in book two, but it's not. There's nothing it's all planned out. That's right. <laughs> Five years of planning, my goodness. And people like feeling that. They like feeling that an author is got there first, I think, you know, mm. that she's, she's made these, it's like riddles or plans, mm. she's left you all these things, and the more you dig down, mm. the more there is to find. I think that opportunity to dig down is really exciting. I think also the fact that, you know, many children read them, and they may not have read massive corpuses of, of various different works, but still they are able to enjoy it, and actually, you know, in of themselves, they are brilliant books. Um, so that's really exactly the fun is all there on the surface and this stuff is sort of waiting but some things so I think with the Mrs Norris for example that, yeah. that's a lovely thing that when people then read Mansfield Park they get a sort of oh yeah. I know yeah. <laughs> that has that pleasure of recognition there's also aspects which I think very cleverly she's made as it were easier for the child to get so for example with the names that mean things when you hear them mm -hmm. so diagonally and yep. nocturnally, when you read them as an you know, adult or older reader, you may well not spot that those are diagonally and nocturnally. Yeah. But as a child hearing it being read to you, it's immediately obvious mm. that Grim Old Place is a Grim Old Place, and that <laughs> <laughs> the you know the Daily Prophet is in it for profit, and things like yeah. that, which is the reader perhaps is slightly more hidden from you. I think mm. that's very clever. Mm. True. Yeah, that's really interesting. I have one final question for you, if I may. If you could be any Harry Potter character, which would you be? <laughs> uh, I think I'd like to be a mashup of Hermione and Luna. I think that'd be the most fun. Okay. They are diametrically opposed, yeah. and they would rub off each other's sort of edgier bits. It might be fun. Mm, yeah, it's a good answer. <laughs> it's kind of a cheating answer. <laughs> it is cheating. If I had to be just one, it would be Hermione. Okay. <laughs> Hermione, excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you uh, not only for sharing your time here today, but also the trail in the Ashmolean. Do you have any future plans that you are willing to share with us <laughs> regarding your research? Purchase? Well, I did really enjoy uh, giving this talk um, and writing the trail in the Ashmolean, sort of thinking about my work in relation to a collection. And that did make me wonder about doing um, other talks in that way. And I have approached the 
Oxford Botanic Gardens because there are masses of plants that are important in potions but also names like we were talking about lavender, uh, the mandrake obviously and I thought that would be a really fun talk to do so I hope that that's going to go forward. Excellent, I look forward to it, another one to add my, my <laughs> diary. Um, that's really exciting. I think as well, um, being able to uh, not bridge a gap, but be able to find ways to connect your research to physical collections and different institutions. Um, it's certainly exciting for us as, as the public to be able to have different insights to these things. So I'm excited to hear you're doing more. Thank you very much. If you're interested in hearing more or reading more about this, then there is a dedicated blog spot. Perhaps, Beatrice, you could let us know about it. We'll make sure it's written into the text that's linked to this podcast. But if you could tell us too, Beatrice. So um, I blog at something called Batilda's Notebook on MuggleNet. Um, so Batilda writes about the history behind Hogwarts. So I thought that would be a good name for um, finding out what's going on behind the scenes in Rowling's own writing. Excellent, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today and thank you for everything. Thank you for inviting me.